0: All the old stories have their firehouses, hostels, banqueting halls, stopping places, some leading to the other world, some made of iron, and all of them set afire, mansions made into ovens, severed heads begging a drink of water. I thought I saw this, driving home at dusk. There was an old house set back off the road, and surrounded by the summer night's heat. But what I took for flames was a thicket, backlit by mere electric light, sprawling from the TV, the kitchen, the bedrooms. We do not know the note of invasion. We don't believe in any other world. Where is there any great liminal space? Some resting place found on the borderland where we might meet with every difference With true refreshment Or awful violence Now that is a poem of mine Called Firehouses From my 2018 book Bowen-Andler Stone And uh, throughout the book There is A Firehouses Part 2 And A Firehouses Part 3 uh, Part Parts 2 and 3 Are based on archaeological finds Of houses in various parts of europe or forts or ceremonial structures that uh, were set on fire and destroyed uh, for for various reasons Um, they were thought uh, unlucky for some reason or uh, in the case of ceremonial places it it may have been uh, thought that the 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 luck or the sacredness of the place had run out, or it had been associated with a certain ruler or uh, mighty person, and that person passed away, and or it could have just been associated with the passing of the seasons. Um, but the poem called "Fire Houses," the very first one, the one that I just read, uh, was inspired by uh, the story that I'm going to read tonight from the Celtic myths. Um, And that is called The Destruction of Daderga's Hostel. And it is one of the, I would say, one of the great stories of literature, period. Uh, In the translation that I have, and for those who don't own this book yet, and who find these myths to be worth their time, go out and buy, right now, the Penguin Classics Uh, Early Irish Myths and Sagas, translated by Geoffrey Gantz. Um, I once tried to get in contact with Geoffrey Gantz because he doesn't seem to have translated uh, much else other than one other uh, book for Penguin Classics, and uh, I was never able to uh, get in touch with him. If you are listening out there, Geoffrey Gantz, by some uh, weird coincidence, uh, drop me a line if you'd like to, but This has been one of the real life-changing books for me. There is Geoffrey Gantz's Early Irish Myths and Sagas, and there is uh, Thomas Kinsella's translation of the Dain Bulkulnia, and those two were the ones that got me into the Celtic myths for real. But um, the story of the destruction of Daderga's hostel takes about 40 or 50 pages, it's the longest book in uh, Geoffrey Gantz's Early Irish Myths and Sagas. And I won't read all of it, in part because, um, like a lot of ancient and medieval literature, it is extremely repetitive. And while uh, I know that I mentioned in a previous episode that uh, one of the Irish manuscripts, one of the Irish or one of the Celtic collections of tales, uh called the Levar Gabala Eren uh was also um filled with repetitions and layers of these things. Uh in in that case, in the case of the uh Levara Gabala Eren, the repetitions and the accretions and all of that, uh, by all accounts, because I haven't read it, I haven't bothered to, um I trust the judgments of nearly everyone who has, uh, they're tedious. They are the, the result of generations of people with varying uh, motives and influences tacking things on to uh, a famous story and just making it longer and longer and longer. The, the wonderful thing about the destruction of Diderga's Hostel is that it is a literary whole. And the repetitions, which I'll get to in a moment, uh, explaining them, the repetitions and the layering and the pacing of the story are just tremendous. And I don't think that I can carry it off in a reading. We would really need uh, almost a stage version or even an abridgment in uh, a, a good radio broadcast to uh, to do this right. And that is certainly not something that I can do. Uh, in one sense, not just because I don't think I have the voice and the presentation to do it, but also because it is filled and overflowing even more than many of the stories are with uh, the names, the Irish names, uh, and the Irish proper names for people and of the landscape. And as anyone who knows uh, the uh, Celtic languages better than I do, um, in these episodes about the Celtic myths, uh, I have stumbled, at best, to pronounce these names correctly. But what I will do is read uh, some summaries of what the whole story says, and then read the very beginning and the very end from the story itself. But before I do that, it seems worth saying what what we're about to get into um, It is, I guess, the the big theological question of religious and mythological literature uh, that we have from from the beginning of these stories. And that question is uh, not necessarily why do bad things happen to good people, and not even why do people suffer, why do we have to suffer. it's almost even more basic than that. It is why do things, why do the things that happen happen at all? Is there a reason behind them? And uh, going through, as I've been doing for the past two or three years, going through the cycle of Torah readings every week, uh, it's not very hard to come upon a modern commentator on the Torah, especially if the stories in the in the books of Genesis, which proclaim the superiority of uh, the stories in uh, the Jewish canon in the Torah and in the Tanakh more widely. And the, the claim is always that uh, in Judaism and in the stories it is clear that uh, God is leaving room for human beings to, to help him. To help him make the created world better and to sort of complete creation. And that the difficulties and the moral ambiguities we find in the lives, especially as I said in Genesis, of the matriarchs and the patriarchs, is seen to be uh, evidence for the fact that uh, God, the God of Judaism, very clearly intends for human beings to have free will, and um, and also that their conception of God, our conception of God, my conception of God, um, is seen to be superior to the conception of God in uh, other religions, and especially the pagan ones that uh, Judaism uh, grew up among. and since I came to Judaism and converted to it after years of immersing myself in the stuff that is supposedly uh, so mistaken and wrong-headed, the pagan stuff, and uh, I would include the Celtic material in this as well and the Norse as well, um, I can really sort of shake my head at that. I don't really believe it. I don't, um, for instance, uh, an easy way to get to the To the end of this uh, part is to just say that uh, it's not hard to find in the Psalms or in the Book of Proverbs or in the prophets like uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah it's not hard to find extended wonderful uh, descriptions of how stupid the pagans are uh, praying to these statues of wood and stone and usually the illustration is something like um, uh, you know, you don't go around worshiping um, uh, the, uh, the laborer. You don't go around worshiping someone just because they work hard with their hands, or the artisan who is able to shape things. And yet, mm-hmm. what do you do? You worship the statue that the laborer or the artisan makes. And um, there's that famous story of uh, that isn't in the Bible but uh, uh, comes from a midrash where uh, Abraham is, uh, is a young boy and his father, in this version of the story, is someone who, uh, I believe, makes and sells idols, statues of, of the pagan gods. And one day Abraham, uh, when his father isn't in the shop, just knocks all but one of those statues to the ground. And when his father comes in and says, uh, Abraham, what did you do? Why did you do this? Abraham says in the story, it wasn't me, it was basically the last God standing. And Abraham's father says, that's ridiculous, he he couldn't do that. And Abraham's response as a boy to his adult father is, if this God of stone or wood couldn't even knock over these other statues, what are you doing Worshipping them and uh, In a way I not in a way I do I I understand the polemic behind that especially when you consider that uh, Ancient the ancient Israelites were a distinct numeric minority at all times and they had to Respond this way to their uh, to the surrounding religions if only to differentiate themselves from them but Mm -hmm. It strikes me again and again that um, Judaism, uh, no religion really, um, and Judaism is only one of them, uh, has no real answer to the question of suffering, to the question of why good thing, bad things happen to good people, why good things happen to, why bad things happen to good people, why good things happen to bad people, why anyone suffers or why anything happens. Um, there really is no answer to it. And if anything, I would call the uh, destruction of the Hostel the Celtic book of Job. It is uh, uh, a story that that tries to understand how chaotic and apparently incoherent uh, life in the world uh, can actually be. Uh, that there just aren't any explanations. Or if there are explanations, uh, they don't make any sense. Um, and so that is the way that I look at the story that, that I'm about to read from. Um, there are a few things, uh, a few summaries, because I said it is 40 pages, and it is worth uh, reading a summary of it and reading sort of a background of it before getting to the small parts of the story that I will actually read. As usual, I will start with James MacKillop's Dictionary of Celtic Mythology. And this is uh, his summary of the uh, destruction of the Derges Hostel. Uh, he says, It is an Irish title for a narrative dating from at least the 11th century, but composed possibly in the 8th or 9th centuries, and usually known in English as The Destruction of Daderga's Hostel. I will give the Irish title in the uh, post description, but I will not uh, try to pronounce it here. Although nominally a part of the Ulster Cycle, the setting and characters are in Leinster, and texts of the story are preserved in the Book of the Dun Cow and the Yellow Book of Lacan. The beginning of the narrative appears to continue another story called The Wooing of Aetane, and it contains a lush description of the resplendent princess of that story. But the focus of the action, however, centers on the legendary king named Canare Moore, the innocent victim of relentless fate. And just from this you can see um, it appears to be part of... uh, these are all later uh, categories. It appears the story appears to be part of one cycle of stories, and yet it has pieces from other cycles of stories. It can fi- it can be found in many manuscripts, and uh, tacked onto the beginning of it is uh, a link to another story. So you can see that um, sort of like the stories in the Book of Genesis, um, someone has taken previous material and done their best to shape it into a miraculous whole that can somehow stand in for almost all of Celtic literature uh, besides. It really does take in everything. Um, And this is the story proper uh, summarized. Before Canare Moore begins his just and prosperous rule at Tara, a number of seemingly unwarranted geisha or taboos are imposed upon him. And he is told that, Birds must always be privileged in the kingdom, and he shall not pass right-hand-wise, i.e. sun-wise, around Tara, nor left-hand-wise, i.e. withershins, around a place called Brega. He must not hunt the crooked beasts of Cairna. He must stay away from Tara on any ninth night. He must sleep in a house from which the light of a fire. He must not sleep in a house where, um, in which the light of a fire is visible after sunset, and into which one can see from outside. And he must not allow three red men to go before him into a red man's house. Daderga's hostel means, I believe, the red, the the man who is red, the red god's house. Uh, he must not uh, allow plundering raiders to land during his reign, and he must not allow a lone man or woman to visit his residence after sunset, and he must not try to settle a quarrel between two of his subjects. You can see just from that list it's random and bizarre, and it's, it's if any of us received a list of nine things we shouldn't do, otherwise we were going to die, uh, we would become uh very paranoid immediately and that is what happens um, in the course of the narrative however canare unintentionally violates every one of these when his three foster brothers sons of the descendants of don desa take to marauding Canare banishes them from ireland and when uh, three other brothers of the Kualu, south of the liffey also begin marauding he exiles them as well at sea, these exiles meet a band of reavers, led by a one-eyed man named Incel Cache, a Briton, and together with the exiled sons of Mave, all named Maine, they ravage first Britain and then Ireland. In Britain, they slay the local king, along with Incel's parents and brothers. Setting sail for Ireland, they arrive first at Hoth, while Conair is traveling to Tadarga's hostel, near Boh. Boherena Brina, South County Dublin, or Glencree in County Wicklow. En route, Canare is enticed by the bizarre-looking Fair Cael man of the wood, and once in the hostel, Canare is visited by a hideous female seer, Calve, who prophesies that all the defenders of the hostel will be destroyed, except for what birds can take in their claws. And the thing with birds is that uh, Canary is related to or descended from birds. So he's not allowed to kill them because that that would be killing his family. And uh, everyone will be destroyed except for what birds can take in their claws. Meanwhile, eager for both revenge and booty, the invaders land at Marion Strand, County Dublin, and advanced inland with 5,000 men. The uh, Hostel belonging to Daderga, in many ways a magical dwelling, is usually described as having seven doorways, although some texts describe it as having nine. Ingsel spies upon the hostel, describing the resident to his companions. Ingsel having only one eye, of course, and lacking an eye, he is given, as usually happens, the ability to see in another way. Pharaoh Gain, Conair's. Connery's foster brother identifies the defenders from the descriptions and predicts which will survive they're looking in while the, uh, the, the people coming are uh, the people coming are looking in the people defending are looking out of these, of these doors these nine doors three times the invaders set the hostel on fire and three times the flames are extinguished many in the hostel are killed the first being Lomna the fool as he himself had predicted, but the defenders, including Canare, slay many of the attackers. When all the available water is consumed, Canare dies of thirst, and two of the reavers decapitate him. At the end of the story, Canary's severed head thanks Macsect for searching all of Ireland to find water to slake his thirst. And there's a great deal of notes that uh, James MacKillop gives, and the most interesting one is that a scholar named John V. Kelleher has argued that uh, the destruction of the Derges Hostel is alluded to in James Joyce's wonderful story called The Dead in Dubliners. And if anyone out there knows the story of the dead, where there is uh, a huge Christmas party, where there is a house where guests are constantly arriving, um, that's a very uh, interesting thing to think about. And for me, at least, someone coming from Dubliners um, and finding uh, Joyce and then the Celtic myths to find uh, uh, something to tie them together is nice as well. And and so that is the short uh, summary of it and of the story. And James McKillop gives this uh, description, this uh, explanation in his uh in his entry on the uh, Old Irish word for hostel, which is Broiden, B-R-U-I-D-E-N. And he says, The old and modern Irish forms of this word signify different meanings. Broiden, Brudna, plural, may denote a hostel, a large banqueting hall, or a house or a mansion, which may or may not imply the other world. A second old Irish word, Irish word, broiden, uh, lowercase b-u-r-i-d-e-n, almost certainly the same as the first means fight, contest, or quarrel. The modern Irish broidean and the Scotch-Gaelic uh, broidean are often used to denote the residence of the fairies, but they may also mean hostile caravanserai, castle or royal residence. And the writer named Anne Ross has asserted that the fear associated with the Breuden may derive from the burning of human sacrifices in wickerwork images in pre-Christian times. And there are other stories of uh, houses made of iron or houses made of metal, where people are captured or uh, blocked in where they can't get out and they are burned alive, and these places become huge ovens, almost. And all of this is the background of the poem I read earlier called Fire Houses. This is where all of it came from, because it is an image that has uh, stuck with me for years and years. And so you you have all of this behind uh, the idea of what a hostel, or what a meeting place, or what a, I guess you could just say, what a large building could mean to people who don't really have very many large buildings of this kind you can associate it with um, with royalty or just with the supernatural and you can also associate opulence with uh, with waste with uh, the rich just acting rich and that at some point you uh, the tide will turn on them. All of these things are in there. And then suddenly you have someone take an inherited tradition and um, make it into this spectacular story. Let me see here. It might be. Let me see. You know what? I was going to read. Um, I was going to read James MacKillop's second summary of the story. It's a little longer in his myths of the legends and the Celts. But uh, I will just mention here, I think what I've said already kind of sets the scene. Um, And really, the other thing I think about this story, uh, not just a Celtic book of Job, but when I first read it, uh, what it struck me as being like is um, a Celtic uh ninth century William Faulkner, thinking specifically of um uh his novel Absalom Absalom, which has uh you know ten page paragraphs and just huge density of of again of doomed fate and all of these things going on uh names spread out everywhere uh the, the curses of history coming back to get you. Uh, and all of this stuff just sort of coming down on you the literal idea of the the house falling down on you um, and it is also extremely an extremely Norse idea of everything being doomed and preordained and fated to just all basically uh, go to hell as we would say now um, all of this is right here in the huge weight of all of these words and and um, one thing that James MacKillop does say in *Myths and Legends of the Celts* is that, mm-hmm. uh, there's that in the other one, is that this takes place uh, over Halloween on on Samhain, and that is also a time when the other world, when the fairy realms and the supernatural realms, where the the veil, as they say, between those two places is thinnest and where, the, um, uh, where contact can be made. And if you think of a hostel as being an entryway to a place like that, well, there you have it. Um, oh, here it is. It's not in uh, MacKillop. It's in Jeffrey Gantz's introduction. I'll just read a tiny piece of that. Uh, Jeffrey Gantz says, The destruction of Diderga's hostel is part impacted myth Part heroic saga, and part literary tour de force, it almost does seem like it is the uh, the the culmination of generations of storytellers in the way that the Iliad or the Odyssey may have been. Um, the name of the hostler in the title is uncertain, says Geoffrey Gantz. Some texts give Ua Derge, the nephew of the Red Goddess. Instead of Da Derga, the Red God, in either case, the Red deity is Thonic that is of the earth, and the mythic subtext deals with the slaying of a king in a house of death at Sawan, although there is no mention of an iron house in Daderga's De hostel, the raider's attempt to burn the hostel suggests that it is related to the iron houses in the stories called the intoxication of the Ulaid, and the destruction of Dindrig. Curiously, although Canare is slain, and that is the point of the tale, the hostel itself is never actually destroyed. And here he just says one thing more about uh, the hero of the story, the the downfall hero, Canare Mare. The conception of Canare Mare like that of the Ulaid hero Chuhallan is Dupal, the storyteller in both cases attempting to reconcile traditions of divine paternity with those of ordinary mortal fatherhood. Once Canary has been installed as king, the tale begins to edge into a kind of history, and perhaps it recalls a significant battle or raid in Irish tribal warfare. And again, the idea of blending um, uh, blending what we would call different story types to create uh, a larger whole. Throughout the, dis- the the destruction of Naderga's hostel, Kaner appears doomed, doomed to break his geisha, taboos, doomed to die for being the offspring of incest. Yet he is not entirely guiltless. The story suggests that he has shown poor judgment in excusing his foster brothers from hanging and in interfering in the quarrel between his two clients. The structure of the tale is idiosyncratic. Some may find the catalogue section tedious and the climax disappointingly perfunctory. Irish stories in manuscript do tend to become unbalanced. Descriptive passages flower into luxuriant growths out of all proportion to their narrative importance, perhaps owing to the storytellers showing off, while conclusions seem casually, even indifferently, thrown away, perhaps owing to the storytellers or scribes growing tired. But it is also true that descriptive catalogues of this sort were important to the Celts, both as literary set-pieces and as a matter of record, And that, in this case at least, the lack of attention given to the denouement underlines its inevitability, the inevitability again of fate. A few things to say about that. One is that I've been listening to uh, Peter Ackroyd's History of Britain, uh, Volume 5, the one on the reign of Victoria. And he spends a a few pages on what became called the three-volume novel. It sort of became the fad. Uh, a fad started by publishers and gladly, uh, gladly latched onto by writers uh, who, basically, as the detractors of the three-volume novel came to say, uh, wrote too much. Um, they not only they not only wrote what was necessary, but they overwrote what was necessary and kept writing what wasn't necessary. So that uh, these these Victorian novels just become huge, uh, windy bags of details. Now you can say that, or you can say that is just what the popular mind wanted. And you can say the same thing about these Irish stories. Um, I once had the, the, uh, the luck to interview uh, a translator of the Middle High German uh a uh, poem uh, of Wolfram von Eschenbach uh, called Parzival, and there's a bit of that kind of extension and bloating and digression in those stories as well. And I was basically asking him, you know, is is this the result of the stories being performed or read to an audience, and is this just what they expected? Was this the kind of storytelling that they were interested in and so uh, Wolfram van Eschenbach gave it to them and the same thing appears in Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur where there might be a thread running through it about the Holy Grail and the search for it but in between are digressions about the knights uh, what we might think of as uh, a whole book of short stories about each of the knights and um, bizarre uh, death scenes where you already know what's going to happen or strange uh, uh, secrets of identity that are only lately revealed but everybody knows what's going to happen all of these strange things and you wonder that maybe this was just the uh, the the patterns or the formula of popular storytelling at the time and the last thing is that um, I heard only recently that um, in a series of lectures on uh, Celtic Ireland um, around the 9th, 10th, 11th century, is that the poets, the storytellers of the time, um, you weren't paid, you weren't well known because you told a new story. You weren't, uh, it wasn't to your credit if you invented a story, it was to your credit if you told a familiar story and gave it your own turn and the idea was that everyone knew what the story was and how it was going to end uh, almost before you started it you would almost uh, uh, hear the title and you would know how it was going to end and the entertaining part was how you told the story so that might also be an explanation of why the ending of a story like this Uh, doesn't have as much punch as we would expect these days when we have a, say, a mystery story and suddenly you find out at the end what happens. That was not, that just was not the expectation at the time. So finally, where are we here? Oh, only 34 minutes in and we're finally getting to reading from the story itself. Um... This is from the very beginning and then from the very end. And this is how... Um, how Kanner became king and then how the, uh, how the battle at the hostel takes place. Um, it says, After that, the king died and the men of Eriu then assembled at the bull feast. A bull was killed, and one man ate his fill and drank its broth and slept, and an incantation of truth was chanted over him. Whoever this man saw in his sleep was the one who became king, and if the man lied about what he saw in his sleep, he would die. Now, four charioteers were playing by the the Liffey, Canare and his three foster brothers, and Canare's fosterers came to take him to the bull feast. The bull feaster had, in his sleep, seen a naked man coming along the road to Tamir at daybreak and bearing a stone in a sling. And But Canare says, I will follow you shortly, and come then. Later, Canare left his foster brothers playing and turned his chariot and charioteer towards ath there he saw huge white speckled birds unusual as to size and color he turned and followed them until his horses grew tired and the birds always preceded him by no more than the length of a spear cast then he took his sling and stepped from his chariot and followed the birds until he reached the ocean the birds went on the waves but he overtook them the birds then left their feather hoods and turned on him with spears and swords one bird protected him however saying I am Nemglon king of your father's bird troop you are forbidden to cast at birds for by reason of birth every bird here is natural to you and Caner admits until now I did not know this this is the usual story of the of the king or the child who doesn't realize his parentage and the, uh, the bird person, you might say, says, uh, Go to Tamir tonight, for that would be more fitting. There is a bull feast there, and it will make you king. The man who naked comes along the road to Tamir at daybreak, with a stone in his sling, it is he who will be king. And uh, I'm just remembering the 2020 election, and maybe uh, a guy getting drunk and eating a bunch of meat and passing out and telling us who he saw in his dreams might be a better way of selecting a leader of the free world based on uh, what America is doing with that process. Who knows? Anyhow, Caner went forth then, and on each of the four roads that led to Tamir there were three kings waiting with garments, for it had been prophesied that the king would come naked. Canere was seen on the road where his fosterers were waiting, and they put the clothing of the king round him, and placed him in a chariot, and he took their hostages. The people of Tamir said, It seems to us that our bull feast and our incantation of truth have been spoilt, for it is a young beardless lad who has been brought to us. But Kanere replied, No matter that, a young generous king is no blemish, and I am not corrupt. It was the right of my father and grandfather to take hostages at Tamir. Wonder of wonders, said the hosts, and they conferred the kingship of Ereu upon him, and said, and he said, I will inquire of wise men, that I myself may be wise. All this, Caner said, just as the man on the waves had taught him to. This man had said to him, Your bird-reign will be distinguished, but there will be geisha against it. And they are these. These are the taboos. Again, you are not to go right-hand-wise round Tamir and left-hand-wise round Brega. You are not to hunt the wild beasts of Cernay. You are not to venture out of Tamir every ninth night. You are not to pass the night in a house where firelight may be seen from within or from without after sunset. Three dergs are not to precede you into the house of a derg. Daderga and his hostel no plunder is to be taken in your reign a company of one man or one woman is not to enter your house after sunset you are not to interfere in the quarrel between two of your servants and reading this again uh, doesn't it sound like the kind of thing after uh, a horrible event happens that people everywhere look for the will of God in it some explanation some if I hadn't it could be just this, if I hadn't gone out every ninth night, if I hadn't gone to a house where I saw a firelight seen from within or without at sunset, if I hadn't driven in a circle this way and instead driven in a circle that way, uh, this is just what people do and what people have always done to explain uh, unfortunate events. And it says here, this summing up the beginning part that I'll read, there was great bounty, then, in Canare's reign, seven ships being brought to inber in June of every year, acorns up to the knee every autumn, a surfeit of Boas and the Boand each June, and an abundance of peace, so that no one slew his neighbor anywhere in Areu. Rather, that neighbor's voice seemed as sweet as the strings of harps. From the middle of spring to the middle of autumn, no gust of wind stirred any cow's tail. That's a detail for you. That's how you know you're having good times. Uh, no gust of wind stirred any cow's tail. There was no thunder and no stormy weather in Caner's reign. And thinking to the stories where the explanations for unfortunate events include the uh, the doomed times of a certain king or the uh, bad actions of a certain king leading to, for instance, in the Arthurian legends, the wasteland, uh, this sort of gives the lie to that, another interpretation of that. Even a good king, even peaceful times, cannot keep you safe. And now, from the very end of the story, this is when the, uh, this is 40 pages later, Uh, when the raiders have made it to the house, when uh, all of the taboos have been broken. uh, Everybody has, the raiders have seen what they're approaching, and those inside the hostel have seen them coming, and this is uh, what happens. At that, the plunderers rose and made for the house, and they raised a loud shout. Hush, said Canare, what is that? Fiana encircling the house,' said Kanal Cernach. "'There are youths here to meet them,' said Canare. "'They will be needed tonight,' said Kanal Cernach. Lomne Druth proceeded to the plunderers into the hostel, and the doorkeepers cut off his head. The head was thrown into the hostel three times, and it was thrown back out three times, just as Lomne Druth had prophesied. Six hundred fell by Canare before he could reach his weapons, the hostile, the hostile was fired three times and extinguished three times, and it was conceded that the destruction would not be carried out until Canare had performed some feat of arms. After that, Canare obtained his weapons, and six hundred fell at the first onslaught, and the plunderers were routed. I told you, said fair Rogaine, that if the Fiana of you and Albu, Albu being Albion, of course, uh, Britain, if the Fiana of Eriu and Albu were about the house, the destruction would nonetheless not be carried out until Canare's heat and ardor were quenched. He has only a short time, said the Druids, who had accompanied the plunderers, and they caused a weakness for drink to come over Canare. Canare entered the house and said, Drink, Popa mexect "'Indeed, I have never taken an order to bring you drink before,' said MacSect. "'You have servers and cup-bearers to bring you drink. "'The order I have taken up to, ne- taken up to now "'has been to guard you from the Fiana of Eriu and Albu, "'who have encircled the hostel. "'I will protect you from them, "'and not a single spear will pierce your body. "'Seek drink from your servers and your cup-bearers.'" After that... Canare sought drink from his servers and his cupbearers. There is none, they said. All the liquid in the house was spent extinguishing the fire. The river Dothra flowed through the house, but they found no drink for him there. Canare sought drink once more, saying, Drink for me, Maxek, my foster son. I do not care if death follows, for I will die anyway. Canare sought a drink a third time, and at that, Magsekt went to the chieftains of Eriu, and he offered the warriors in the house the choice of protecting the king or fetching a drink for him. And Conall Sternach answered from within the house, We will protect the king. You go to fetch the drink, since it is you, he asked. Magsekt went to fetch drink then. He put Lefer Flaith, son of Canare, under one arm, And under the other he put Canare's gilt cup, which was large enough for an ox to boil over the fire, and he took his sword and his shield and his two spears and a bar of iron that was under the king's cauldron. At the entrance to the hostel he dealt nine blows with the iron bar, and each blow felled nine men. He did the edge feat. The Celtic myths are filled with people doing various feats in battle. He did the edge feet with his sword about his head, and so cut a path out of the house. Maktsek went on to Tipra-Kirp, which was nearby in hrih and he had Kanare's cup in his hand, but he could not fill it there. Before morning he had gone round to the major rivers of Eriu, Buas, Boand, Bandai, Nem, Lai, Ligdai, Sinan, Siwir, Sliach, Samir, Findi, and Ruthrek. But he could not fill the cup. He went on until he reached Uar and and Mag having first gone round the waters and the chief lakes of Ereu, Derdrek, Luminek, Loch riv Lok Febale, Lok Mesca, Lok Norbsen, Loch, Loch Juan, Nichach, and Markloch, and still failing to fill the cup. Uar and did not hide from him, so he filled the cup and put the lad under his arm he returned then and reached the hostel before morning and here we see either the extravagance of the storyteller or just the Irish storyteller's love of uh, of topographical detail uh, to connect it to the book of Genesis one more time there are as readers know all the list of begats, begats, begats begats, so and so did this, this this and this and for years, people have just skimmed over those to get to the narrative. Uh, but I read a wonderful suggestion recently, which said that perhaps these lineages, even if they aren't literally true, uh, that that they are some remnant, if they are some remnant of folk memory or folk tradition of family lines between peoples and cultures, that those lineages and these those details that to us, seem boring or just seem to be lists of words that don't mean anything to us uh, they may be some of the oldest parts of the Torah and who knows if this uh, circuit that uh Mact Sect makes around Ireland looking for water isn't just part of another story or a much older story that just gives a list of the rivers of Ireland because what more sacred thing you can think can you uh, make a list of but the places, the goddesses, since I think aren't all the rivers goddesses, uh, where you can get refreshment and drink from. And I better read this quickly. I'm going to run out of time. When Meksek reached the third ridge from the house, he saw two men striking Canary's head off. He struck the head from one of the two men. But the second made to escape with Canare's head and here of course is the irish the celtic love or obsession with severed heads as well Um, on the floor of the hostel near the entrance there happened to be a pillar stone at Mm maxect's feet he cast this stone at the second man it struck the man in the small of the back and his back broke Mm maxect struck off the man's head then he poured the cup of water into Canare's throat, and Canare's head recited this poem A good man, Maxsect. Welcome, Maxsect. He brings a drink to a king, he does well. After that, Maxsect went after the rout. Only a very few, nine, had fallen round Canare, and scarcely a single messenger had escaped to bear the news to the plunderers who were about the house. Where there had been five thousand, and ten 1, hundred in every thousand, there escaped no more than one-fifth, apart from Ingsel, the the one-eyed guy, and his brothers. At the end of the third day, Maktsekt was among the wounded on the field of slaughter, and he saw a woman going by. Stay a while, woman, he said, I dare not go to you, she answered, for fear and horror of you. That time has passed, woman, said Makzekt. I give you the truth of my honor and my protection. The woman went to him then. I do not know if it is a fly or an ant or a midge that nips at my wound, Makzekt said. Indeed, it is an ant of the ancient earth, said the woman. I swear by the God of my people, I swear by the God my people swear by, said Makzekt. I thought it no more than a fly or a midge. And then he, too, died on the field of slaughter. And here's the last paragraph of the story. Conal El escaped, though three fifties of spears had gone through his shield hand. He went to his father's house, bearing fragments of his sword and his shield, and his two spears in his hand. He met his father at the entrance to the courtyard at Talitiu, "'Swift the dogs that have chased you, my son,' said his father. "'It was a combat with young heroes, old warrior,' said Kanal. "'Have you news of Daderga's hostel? "'Does your lord live?' asked his father. "'He does not,' Karnal Zernak replied. "'I swear by the god my people swear by it as a coward "'who would come away alive and leave his lord with the enemy,' said the father." "'My wounds are not white, old warrior,' said Kanal. "'He showed his father his shield-arm "'and the three fifties of wounds that had been inflicted upon it. "'His shield had protected that hand, "'but it had not protected his right hand. "'That had been attacked over two-thirds of its length. "'It had been hacked and cut and wounded and riddled, "'but the sinews had not permitted it to fall off.' that hand injured many tonight, and it was much injured, said Amorjin. True, old warrior, said Conall Sernak. There are many to whom it served drinks of death at the entrance to the hostel tonight. And I'm not really sure what is wrong with that ending. Uh, it should be unsettling, and so I will leave you with the unsettling violence that this story ended with. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.